Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. But as we get into the word today, uh, I want you to think about your life in two points. One circle over here, one little dot over here, and one little dot over here. And at this side uh, is when you were born, and then this side is today. So on one side was way, 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 way back for some. Also, the the knees comment was great, James. Um, So I'm not going to say for some of you it was way back. We'll just say all of us. You know, this is the OG, right? Born over here and and today. And I want you to think for just a moment of if you were to draw a line between the two, what that would look like. Think about the gazillions of events that happened in your life to get you where you're seated right now. That uh, there was uh, moments from birth until today, big and small, uh, that were pivot points or turning points in your life. And so you have, uh, you know, uh, this is just obviously just a a little bit of a guess, right? You're growing up and then you have a a huge boost in life, right? Or you, maybe you decided the college you were going to go to and that's a turning point. Then things go all right, and then things get even better when you get the job that you wanted, but another turning point comes shortly after where you got a demotion, not a promotion. Only to find another situation, things stay stable for a while, and they go you know, down, up, down, up. The scribble in the middle is when you have kids. It's kind of... We're living in the scribble right now. We, we, we got a scribble life. And so you, you have all of these turning points in life, both large and small, and ultimately life is made up of turning points. Because when you come into a turning point, whether you realize it or not, you're never the same. Now, I think there are two categories I'll put it in. There's minor turning points and major turning points. So minor is I had a bad day today. It, it turned from a good day to a bad day. And then it, it equalizes in a little bit later. A major one is I got a divorce. A major one is the, the death of a loved one. The, the, a major one is a massive promotion. Think about, some of you know about, some of you don't. A, a major one might be a conversation you didn't expect that ended up being a career turning, a trajectory changing conversation. And so you have all of these things and if you were to look back at your life from one dot to another, there's turning point after turning point. Some that you recognize, some that you only recognize after the fact, and that's what this series is all about. How do we navigate turning points well? And I believe that if you navigate the minor ones well, you're ready for the major ones. That if we navigate these smaller turning points, then we culture our heart and we get ourselves set up so when a major turning point happens, we know what to do and we know how to respond. And we know how to step our next step, put our feet in the right place, uh, whether you're wearing dazzling white shoes, as I'm getting some some comments, I'm sure they won't be white for very long, or however you are walking in today, knowing your next step, I think, comes from making your small steps right, so your big steps are ready. 
And so as we talk about turning points, I really believe that there are two things that impact how you navigate every turning point in your life, and that's what we're going to see today in our time together. If we have these two things in line, we're poised to navigate future turning points well, both that we see in the moment and that we'll only see in the rearview mirror. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we ask for your help. Lord, we ask that you would unveil our eyes, that we would see in Scripture your truth, that we would walk away changed in some way, big or small, that we would look a little more like you, that we would love a little more like you, and we would live more like you, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So you can turn uh, to Genesis chapter 4. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, usually I like to give an idea of where it's, you know, in your Bible. It's probably the second page. Uh, probably you open it up, you got the, the, you know, copyright stuff, you got the table of contents, and then you got pretty much Genesis 4. Uh, we talked last week uh, about kind of the beginning. Pastor James did such a great job of introducing us to these characters of Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, and they had a massive turning point right off the bat. God gave uh, this, you know, one, pretty much one objective, one rule, one boundary, don't eat from this tree, and they decided that instead of trusting the wisdom of God, they're going to decide that, that they are the, the source of wisdom, and so they made a decision that would be a turning point in human history forever. So that happens, they get booted from the garden, God says this can't exist, and we think it's not because God is mean, it's not because God said, well, uh-uh, one, one little sin, but he says, I, I love, God says, hey, well, we can't allow sin to live forever, and so we need to change. So, so putting, you know, Adam and Eve outside the garden was actually an act of mercy so that sin couldn't live eternally. And so we have Adam and Eve that are taken from the garden. They're put outside of, of the garden. Uh, and here we have in chapter four what happened next. It says this in chapter four. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You've probably heard the story of Cain and Abel before. Uh, it's, you know, almost literally a tale as old as time. It, it, Cain and Abel is, you know, one of the most famous in the story. If you've ever tried to read the Bible, you at least got to Cain and Abel. So you have, this is act one of the Cain and Abel narrative, right? This the setup, the preamble, if you will. You have uh, here, it could, because we know how it sort of ends, spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for, for Abel, it doesn't really go his way, uh, but you have like before it's a story about murder though, it's a story about worship. 
So when we think about the Cain and Abel story, we have this drama of betrayal and rivalry and ultimately the death, the first death in human history, Abel. But before it's a story about that, it's a story about worship. Remember, there are two things that impact how you navigate every turning point in life. And the first is this, how you see God. It starts as a story of worship. These are the first offerings given by humanity to God in all of scripture. This is it. This is pre-law, like God had not talked to Moses. There was no regulations given in Leviticus yet. There was no, hey, this is A, B, and C, what you should do. This is just a humanity's natural response to the goodness of God. They, they see God, and even though, I, I love this about God, even though they were kicked out from the garden, God was still familial enough, he was still there enough that they could see him and interact with him, and their response was worship. And here's where I think, like, uh, Cain sort of gets a bad rap off the, you know, off the, the beginning, it was like, oh, he's, you know, the villain, but like, let's just read it at face value for a second, because I think sometimes we can read tone into the text, and we can sort of decide what it's saying by how we read it, but we really have, like, uh, let's just notice one thing, Cain brought a sacrifice first. So we, we go, oh, Cain just brought, because there's a translation that says Cain brought some, and Abel brought his first. And so, so oh, he just brought some? Okay, just some? What, you, what, are, you, what are you doing, Cain? Like, no, no, but like, it, Cain brought some vegetation, and uh, Abel also brought some meat. Like, so Cain brought it first. It, it also, like, it doesn't say that it wasn't his first, it just said he brought some. Abel brought some meat, and then Cain also brought some vegetation. And I don't actually think it's a leap to say that Cain's was probably prettier. Like, so you have, on one hand, you have an animal carcass, and on the other hand, you have a charcuterie board. It's like you have, it was probably even better looking. And so, if that's the case, why would God accept one and not accept the other. And I don't mean to infer or decide, I'm not gonna to meet someone's presuppositions with my own. I'm just saying, if we look at it at face value, why would God accept one and not the other? And what does that say about our worship? Uh, I think that uh, w- what's great is, is if we look at the entire, like the entire Bible, it's all one story. If we look at the other side, New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, there's some clarity. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. So if all things are equal in this situation, then the differentiator we see is the attitude that he had behind it. That we have uh, this situation where we have offering A and offering B, but it says, by faith, Abel did something that Cain didn't do. So it's a, the, the Greek word for faith, it, 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 if you kind of expand it, belief, trust, confidence, fidelity, faithfulness. So the differentiator wasn't the chronological order of what happened first, it was the faith that was behind it. And for me, I don't know about you, but that actually is a little encouraging. 
Because for me, I, I think it's encouraged because sometimes we look at other people's like worship and, and we think, man, they have something a little prettier than I do or their life seems a little more put together than I do or man, they sing so much you know, better than I do or man, they're, they're living so much better than I'm living. But what I, I love, if we were just to kind of take an excerpt of this, something away, is I don't think God is looking for flawless, I think he's looking for faith. I don't think God is looking for flawless. I think he's looking for faith. That when we come to the table, we're not just offering something that, that looks good because sometimes we don't have something that looks good. We come with ourselves. We say, God, hey, this is, this is what I got. This is, this is me. It, it, I, I think this gives us uh, just a little bit of hope that sometimes when we feel like we don't have what someone else has, God's not looking at that. Like God's not looking, and like Jesus even confirms it in Luke 18, like he tells the story of there's the Pharisee and then the poor man, and then the poor man uh, comes in and he's, uh, or the Pharisee comes in, he gives and he says, God, look at me. God, check it out. I give the first 10%, aren't I awesome? And then the poor man comes and he just says very, very, very little. He says, God, forgive me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says that he actually accepted the poor man's offering, not the Pharisee. So like, I think it's confirmed through scripture. Like Jesus is saying, I'll take the penny if it has a little faith on it. You know, like I, I'm not looking, I'm not looking for the riches. I don't need a million dollars. My, my streets are paved with gold. I'm doing okay. Like I'm doing okay. But he's saying, I, I'll, I'll take the penny if it has a little faith on it. And we can walk in sometimes and all we have is that. And then we walk in and we, we say, God, all I have is my faith. Now, so it shows, uh, like, it, it, another word for faith is, is trust, and if you've ever been, uh, like, rock climbing, I don't mean, like, necessarily a mountain, uh, but, like, you know, like, I don't know, REI or the, the mall or a summer camp or whatever, you, you, climb, you climb up the thing, you feel awesome, you got the harness, you got the top, they say, okay, now, when you get to the top, you have to do something, and that's coming back down. Going up, usually not that hard because they kind of give you a little help if you need it, but going down, that's where the trust comes in. Because in order to go down, you need to lean back. And up until the top, you were as strong as you were, and all you were really depending on is how, you know, how tight you could grip on and how high you could climb, but you get to the top and you all of a sudden have to trust something else. So you have to lean back, and they say, I've been in that environment, you know, doing youth ministry for a while, summer camp and things like that, where they say, trust your gear. They say, trust your gear. And so you're, you're really, in that moment, you have to lean all the way back and put all of your trust in the harness that's holding you. And so you have to trust that it's strong enough to hold you. You have to trust that the instructor was competent enough to tie the knot well, and you have to trust that the system is going to work as it should. And when you do, you put your full weight on it. And this is where Cain seems to have gone wrong. Because you see in his actions that he didn't trust one that, that God was, was 
worthy of the full sacrifice. He maybe didn't trust that God was qualified to be the judge of what was good or what was bad, and ultimately, because we know the decision he made, he didn't trust the wisdom that God laid out. Because God is pretty clear, he gives kind of a a champ talk, right? He says, do the right thing and you'll receive honor. Do the wrong thing, it's not gonna go well for you because sin is against you. And here Cain finds his turning point. He has a decision to make. And we can make this about sacrifices sometimes, and I think we can read this and we just say, how does this look for your, your worship? And, and we say, okay, that's probably the way I give, maybe my generosity, worship, the way I, I act in, you know, in, in a worship setting environment like this. And that's a small portion of your week. Paul in Romans 12 says, present your, your bodies as an active sacrifice, as a living sacrifice. Present your lives that way. And so what... What does your life say about the way you see God? What does your life say if someone just looked at your life about how you see God? That God is someone who who cares about us being put together on the outside? That God is wise and, and worthy of obedience? What does your sacrifice say? about the way you see God. So Cain finds himself at a major turning point. Here he stands, his gift on the altar, not accepted before God. And I think here's where he might have gone wrong. He's asking the question, do I take the wisdom from God or do I take it into my own hands? And where he went wrong, I think, you know, says his face is, is, is fallen. And instead of going like this, he went like this. And instead of looking to God for some resolution and clarity, he goes, well, there's this other guy. And all of a sudden, he seems to be getting in the way. Because uh, we, we sometimes do that, and it says this just to kind of uh, pop the suspense, just in case you were wondering how it ends. Uh, I know, everyone's like, what happens to Abel? What does Cain do? Uh, let's just read it. It says in Genesis 4, 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Some translations add, let's go to the field. And they were in the field, when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. So Cain's face is down. Instead of looking up, he looks to the side. And this comes to uh, thing number two that helps us navigate every turning point well. The first is how we see God, and the second is how we see others. And I think there's a reason that Jesus puts them in this order. This isn't an incredibly original thought of me. I I didn't look at scripture and and decide. Jesus did. Like Jesus says, you know, that the the greatest commandments are to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself, right? So, and I think that there's a reason Jesus puts them in this order, because if you're doing the first one, the second one's a lot easier. 
Like, if you say, God, I'm going to put you at the top of my priority list, you are number one. All of a sudden, you see uh, the other people different. The first thing to navigate turning points well is how you see God. The second is how you see others. And I I think about it this way when it comes to how we sometimes identify um, just our, in our our life. Um, There's someone in our neighborhood who decided to put up a fence, so they put up a fence, and they um, it was a decent-looking fence. But there are anybody love HOAs? Just you, just love an HOA. I'm not saying we don't have like a bougie HOA. I'm not saying like oh check us out. Like you know we just like reason. But there's there's some rules that they, that they put in. So there's some some rules. Um, and so they say that when you put in a fence, you need to put in this kind of fence. Okay, wood fence that has little swoopies. But they put in this kind of fence. Okay, straight top. So we see, you know, the, the people come to this house in our neighborhood with the clipboards. God bless the clipboards. And we can only imagine what the conversation was. Um, and, and so if you have a fence like this, but you need a fence like this, you have a couple options. One, you have two options really. One is you rebuild the fence. That's the normal option. Or you say, hey, let's do it. You know, let's just kind of... You go for it. And if you decide the second one, you have two options. One is, I'm going to find a template or something that's going to guide that this is going to look great. The second is, I'm going to give it my best shot. So we see this brother pull up with his hacksaw. And he and he's doing his best, and he and I'm not even judging because he he's doing better than I would. But you look at the fence later, and it looks like a guy did it with a hacksaw. And when we stand in our life. And we judge how we're doing based on the plank to our left or our right. We're always going to end up not where we should be or looking how we should look. Because we go, because if you look plank by plank, yeah, it's pretty close, right? You know, like if this plank's doing what it sort of should and it's saying, you know, plank number one, plank number three, plank number two, okay, I'm doing all right. You know, but then when you look at the actual picture, that plank is not looking how it's supposed to look. But when we do this in life, we look to our left and we look to our right and we we say, okay, maybe I'm not like killing it everywhere, but at least I'm doing better than them. Or we look to our left and right and we say, man, I wish I was doing as good as they are. And we feel like life should be graded on a curve. You know what I mean when I say graded on a curve? You know, where the teacher at the end of the class says, well, hey, you didn't do great, but you did better than everybody else. But at the end of the day, when we stand before Jesus, he doesn't grade us against the fence post next to us or the fence post, you know, to the right. He grades us on the template. And like, we don't get to go before Jesus and say, at least I did better than everybody else. Because his standard isn't pretty good. His standard is perfect. Because he's not asking us to to gauge ourselves based on the fence post to our left or the right. He's 
asking us to base ourselves on Jesus. And all of a sudden, we stop feeling so good about ourselves. <laughs> Any bit that we went, man, I, I didn't like bash a guy's head over with a rock like Cain, but, you know, but I'm doing okay. We start to, to, to diminish that just a little bit. And until verse eight, it wasn't about Abel. It was just about Cain and God talking about Cain and God. God didn't say, hey, if you only did what your brother did, hey, just go, just go, like, go talk to him a little bit. Have him just champ talk you up. Like, hey, just go, if you spend some time with Abel, you know, you're gonna get a little bit, you're gonna get a little bit better. No, but it was just about Cain and God talking about Cain and God. But Abel decided, or Cain, I'm sorry, brought, decided to, to bring Abel into the mix. And I feel like someone just needs to, to hear, stop following Abel on Instagram. Like, like, just let Abel do Abel. And you do you, like, just, you, you, it's, it's you and Jesus, like, it's going to be okay. You know, we follow Jesus, we, you know, and, and we, I'm not saying, you know, bring people along for the ride, like, don't, don't isolate yourself, but like, just let, let them do them, you do you, and I, I think when we start, like I said, when we do the first thing well, when we love God well, when we see God well, we see others in a different light. I love, um, C.S. Lewis says this in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If we could see people for who they are, it would change everything. It makes me think of Michelangelo. You might have been um, familiar with, um, you know, the the story that as he was uh, carving out, uh, Pastor James actually referenced, um, you know, he, he, David, right, the statue David. So as uh, he's uh, in that moment, he was asked this. Um, they, they said, uh, um, not sorry, not after David though. There's a he did a sculpture of an angel, um, but he was once asked how he went about the sculpting process. And his answer was, I saw the angel in the marble, and I carved until I set him free. I saw the angel in the marble, and I carved until I set him free. What if we stopped criticizing the marble and started looking for the angel? Like that the people in our life, that our our spouses, our family, uh, we stopped looking at the marble and we started saying, like, inside there is an image bearer of God. And so we can really look at, at people two ways. They're either enemies or they're image bearers. Um, and I think that so often we can drift towards seeing them as competition instead of uh, someone that we're called to love. And so let's be people who don't see others as enemies and competitors. Uh, but we have now Cain. Back to his story. Cain isn't here, and he's not in the Bible for us to criticize and learn from. 
It's not just someone that we, we you know, want to look at and say, man, wasn't he bad at doing life? At least I'm not like him. Cain is here to show us who we are when left to ourselves. Cain isn't this object villain for us to, to just point at and feel good about ourselves. He's there to show us who we are when left to ourselves. And, and here, Cain makes this action in Act 2 where he, he really drops the ball, this turning point. It, it's, it's not the right move. He decides to kill Abel. But let's at least look at God's response to him in the final act of the Cain and Abel narrative. In Genesis 4, verse 9 through 12. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? If you have kids, you know that. Like, if we're in the other room, we have a one-year-old Ogden and a two-and-a-half-year-old Olivia. If we hear a thud, it was not Olivia pushing, or Ogden pushing Olivia over. Uh, If we we hear a thud, and and you kind of run over there to see what's happening, and and Ogden's on the floor crying, and Olivia is glued to that wall. Like, the opposite wall. Like, Spider-Man couldn't be more glued to the wall than she is. It is like, she's like, oh, what? It's like, how did Ogden get on the floor? She's like, I don't know. Am I bro- my brother's keeper? Well, I don't, he just, oh, he's over, like, you know, if you're a parent. He says, so he, so he said, so God said, bro, think of a better excuse than that. So Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. And there's a a little act of mercy that God has just after that. But here we have God's unadulterated response to evil. We have the consequences of the action. Like you, you did something, you, we've all done something. We don't want any of the consequences. But here, uh, it, Abel's blood speaks. And it's not talking about literal you know, blood actually having a voice and, and talking, but it's representative. Hey, that all throughout scripture there's, uh, there's injustices, there's, there's wrongdoings, and Abel on behalf of wrongdoings everywhere uh, is saying, God, will there be no vengeance for me? And so I can just uh, imagine now Abel's voice echoing through the halls of eternity that have yet to be filled, saying, God, your servant is dead. It's at the hands of that man. We've all been wronged, and we quickly just associate with the one who is wronged, but we're not just the oppressed, we're also the oppressor. And Abel's blood shows us the consequence that we deserve for the oppression that we've given. That Abel's blood speaks on behalf that the justice that should be served should be served. And we have here 
the judgment uh, that, that, uh, that uh, he's crying for judgment and it results in judgment, that there's uh, another curse. It was already hard to work the land because of Adam's curse. And then he has a right, this next generation, another curse is curses on curses on curses. Things aren't looking good uh, for humanity. And again, it's, it's not that, that Cain is just this guy in the Old Testament. Cain is us. Because we don't get to the end and say, God, at least I did pretty good. At the end of the day, we're the person in the field with a rock in our hand saying, I choose me. But in all of scripture, there are two places that they use this analogy of blood speaking. You have Abel in the Old Testament in Genesis but back to our book in Hebrews. He's talking about and to, to God and to, to Holy Spirit. And then it says this, and to Jesus in verse 24 of chapter 12, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A better word than the blood of Abel. And this is what it means. It's not just encouraging or, yeah, Jesus is cooler than Abel. No, Abel's blood cried for justice and Jesus' blood cried for forgiveness. That Abel's blood says, this is what you deserve for what you did. And Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they did. Jesus sits stands on the cross and says, God, I did everything right. Jesus was the able in the situation, walking through life, honoring God in every single way. And he looks at Cain from the cross and he says, not avenge me, forgive him. And remember, we're not able, we're Cain. So Jesus sprinkled blood gives a better word than the justice that we deserve that Abel's blood spoke. And so if the most important thing to navigate turning points is is how we see God and how we, we see others, the cross changes them both. Because the cross shows us, the cross changes how we see God. And it changes how we see that God loves us. And so as we look, how do we see God different in the midst of a turning point? How do we see others through a the, the different lens and in a different turning point? It's through the lens of the cross. That we look to others and we see others, we look at the cross. And so now we look at God and instead of having the Genesis 4 mentality of, oh God, I messed up again, this is a curse, and, and God, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I won't do it again. That's, that's, that's Cain's response. God issues the curse and he says, God, I can't take that. I can't do that. And so instead of having the Genesis 4 reaction, we get to have uh, the New Testament reaction, which is like, God, I know I messed up, but Jesus put it on the cross. God, I know, I know that I'm Cain, but Abel died for me. And it changes how we see others. Because God didn't just die for you. He died for the coworker you really don't like. And he died for the haters in your life. He died for the person who voted opposite from you. 
Should I stop? <laughs> he, he died for the person who has a different lifestyle than you. He died for the person who's somewhere they shouldn't be right now. He died for the person who did something last night they shouldn't have done. And when we look through the cross, we realize the radical work of God for us, the radical work of God for those that we love, and turning points seem a little bit different. So when we face a a turning point that we didn't expect, we look at the cross. And when we're making a decision, a massive turning point in our life, we look at the cross. And when we find ourselves in a, in a situation, we look at the cross, and you can, it's like Mad Libs, when you like decide what to do on the next page before you get to the next page. You ever play that game? Like you, you start you know, putting in words that you didn't, you, know, you just say, I don't know what's on the other side of the page, but I'm just gonna say adjective, verb. You just go cross, 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 cross. So whatever's on the other side of the page, I already know the answer. Would you stand with me? I asked us to start by looking at our life with two points. When you were born and today. And all of the turning points that got you from where you were to where you are. And there's an opportunity today to have another turning point. The day's not over. That we have a chance that wherever you find yourself in this place, Maybe you're, you feel far from God. Maybe you uh, have been walking with Jesus for a long time. Maybe you're coming up on a big decision or you just got bad news. Wherever you find yourself, we're all in the midst of a turning point. And we have a chance today to initiate a turning point of our own. That we can walk out of this place and look at God differently And we can look at the people in our lives differently by looking at them through the lens of the cross. If you take a moment and just close your eyes, this is just a, a moment with you and Jesus. Don't worry about what Abel's doing, just worry about you. Just ask God, what what turning points do I need today? God, what's the turning point that you have for me that I need to make a pivot? Have I been looking wrongly at you? Have I been looking wrongly at the people in my life? And God, help me change. God, thank you that your son came to earth to initiate the greatest turning point of all time. That those were headed, that were headed for an eternity in hell have had the turning point, the trajectory-changing, life-altering turning point that now we can spend eternity with you and that eternity can start right now. That heaven isn't just somewhere we go one day. It's something that can be here now. And it's by this work on the cross that we have this faith, we have this trust in you. And we say, yes, God, we we look at the cross and we just say yes for our own life. We say, forgive us of the things that we've done that aren't like you. Forgive us of the Cain moments in our life. 
and help translate us to look like Jesus. We thank you that it's possible that you took a sinner's death so that sinners like us could be made right with God. We say yes in the name of Jesus. Amen.